Many of us have gone through a job search process. And for most of us who have gone through that, it can be soul-searching, and sometimes it can be downright stressful. Since the new year, Julia, my wife, has been on a job search. She has an English lit background. She's, uh, done, she's an excellent writer and, and communicator. She's taught English literature at the college level, published some news articles, and done marketing and communications. She's been applying to all these different positions and gone, begin to go through these interview processes. And we chatted this week about these different positions that she's considering. Some are of more interest to her than others. But why? For her, we realized as we were chatting, it's not just about the industry or it's not just about the pay. For her, it was the kind of people that she was going to be working with. If you think about it, there's some wisdom to that, right? If you think of your waking hours and half of them will be at work. So half of them will be a cert- with a certain group of people. So you want to be with people that bring life to you and, or, or else they'll drain life out of you. We all thirst for a leader that we can trust and find satisfaction in working with. And that instinct reaches beyond our work relationships as well. It's an instinct that we feel in our entire lives. Who do we trust that will bring us the most satisfying life possible? We're in the middle of this Flourishing Life series where we're walking through the Gospel of John to see the kind of life promised by the living God, and how we might experience that life now in the present. As we look to Jesus, we begin to see this quality of life where we are fulfilled and satisfied, but also a quality of life that overflows to the world around us in a positive way. As we experience this future life that God intends for us, we find that not only do we enjoy life, but we bring life to those around us. The text we've heard read today that Jessica just read ends with this promise of the kind of life, satisfaction, overflowing. But prior to Jesus making that promise, there's all these interesting interactions happening. And this promise seems to be dropped down in the middle of this controversy over Jesus' identity. And as I was studying this, I was like, man, what does this have to do with one another? It's a question of what kind of life is most satisfying, and who is going to offer it to you? Who has the uh, qualifications to offer that to you? What vision of humanity and culture is going to provide us the most satisfying life that we thirst for? So when it comes to satisfaction, there's this relationship between expectation and reality that results in our satisfaction. Maybe you've seen this formula of expectation minus reality equals satisfaction. You can go to the next slide. So if our expectations are about unicorns and rainbows, but our reality is not those things, then we'll be very unhappy. But maybe there's a different kind of formula that we can live with that gives us satisfaction. As we look to this chapter, we're going to see how people who meet Jesus find their expectations of him and the reality of who he is confronted. But those who see and hear his promises for what they are find a quality of life that they've been thirsting for satisfied. Now, expectations. Feasts are important to John, the writer of the Gospel of John. And there are significant revelations of Jesus' identity that take place in the midst of these feasts. We're told that in John chapter 7 and 8, take place during the Feast of Tabernacles. It takes place in the fall season, about six months after 
the scene of last week's message where Jesus fed 5,000 people and talked about feeding those who hunger for the bread of life. So in the Feast of Tabernacles, which takes place during the fall, about, uh, uh, celebrating the harvest of grapes and olives, and it's a feast where Jews are making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to gather in celebration and recalling God's blessing in the past upon their ancestors. Here's an artist's depiction of their ancestors. I, always, I laughed. Isn't that amazing? It reminded me of it's the same inspiration of Thor crossing the, <laughs> the big Bifrost Bridge. It's in the midst of this feast that we see the controversies surrounding Jesus' identity develop around these few characters who all have different expectations of the anticipated Messiah. First, there are the fans. Chapter 7, which we didn't hear at the very beginning, begins with his brothers wanting him to go to Jerusalem. They want him to go there to build his following. In 7.4, he goes, No one wants to, who wants to become a public figure acts in secret since you are doing these things. Show yourself to the world. They see their brother Jesus as a trending public figure. He's getting a Twitter following. His YouTube and Twitch streams are gaining subs. And they want him to go on a professional uh, promotional tour, make rounds on all the talk shows to build his rep. And he's their brother. So obviously they want to fill their social media feeds with selfies. You know, yo, this is my bro, JC, healing lame men. Hashtag lame man walking. But Jesus doesn't get carried away in this excitement of his family. They have expectations for their family pride and honor. But Jesus has got the honor of another family member in mind first. Then there are the curious who follow Jesus. In verses 11 to 15, we see before Jesus arrives at uh, at the feast in Jerusalem, whispers go through the crowds about who he is, and leaders are trying to measure him up. They have expectations for Jesus to continue his almost circus show for them to satisfy their curiosity. Some have heard that he's a good man. Verse 12, leaders like the Pharisees and and Sanhedrin, the ruling uh, ruling class of the Jewish people, are trying to measure up his qualifications. What town did he come from? Verse 27. What teacher did he study under? Verse 15. The curious have expectations that their questions be answered the way they want them to be answered. And finally, we have the haters. These, in this case, are the rule followers, the one who have done their time following the the process. They had expectations that if they followed the rules, then they should experience a satisfied life. If you went to the right schools, if you followed the right expectations of society, then you should be rewarded. And no one has a right to take that away from you. Especially this questionable rabbi named Jesus who's taking the limelight. It's time to engineer a controversy to take him out so he doesn't upset your status quo. As a fan or a curious onlooker or as a hater, it's simply a one-way relationship. Their own personhood wasn't necessarily confronted by the reality of the person they followed. You know, we might come to Jesus with these kinds of expectations too. As fans, we might want Jesus to make our lives look good. We want blessing by association. But fans don't really know the person they follow. 
They might know a lot about Jesus, but they don't really know Jesus as a person who reveals his character to us and invites us into a relationship. As a curious, it's our own expectations of interest that shape our relationship with Jesus. We engage as long as our curiosity is satisfied, but we don't let his loving care for us and for the world around us to shape us. At times, we can come to Jesus as haters too. We pick and choose the parts of Jesus that tickle our fancy, but put blinders on or put our arms up against any part that we don't want him to be involved with. We like to look at the things that we value and uphold them as deserving of credit and recognition, and we miss out on the kind of life that he has come to give us because of our pride, because of our self-sufficiency. What kind of expectations are you approaching Jesus with today as you walked into this room or as you're listening online? Because we all have them. We can be a fan and miss out on the real Jesus. We can be curious and miss out on the promises he gives. And we can be a hater and we carry our judgments about him and the kind of life that we deserve so closely that we miss out on who he is and we miss out on the kind of life that we long for. Some of us have begun our 2018 tax returns. Some of you may have even completed them. And while the current administration promised lower taxes for the middle-class households, many people were surprised that their tax returns were lower than they had expected. They feel betrayed somewhat by the administration they chose to support. But in some cases, their expectations for larger tax returns were misplaced expectations because smaller tax returns were the result of smaller withholdings taken off your paycheck during the year at source. So reality was different from what they had expected and what they were used to, but in some ways it was better. When reality doesn't match our expectations, we feel less satisfied. But sometimes reality is different from our expectations in a good way. It's just much different than what we had expected or imagined. This takes place for Jesus' contemporaries as well. They have their expectations of a Messiah. They want a leader who will bring honor and make Israel great again. Their sense of anticipation or satisfaction was tied to their expectation of a political leader. But Jesus challenges that expectation when he arrives in their midst. He teaches with eloquence. He does miracles. But what he says and what he does and where he comes from doesn't seem to line up with their expectations, and they don't know what to do with it. With the crowds question the, when the crowds question the source of Jesus' wisdom and education, Jesus replies in verse 16, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. What they found attractive and life-giving about Jesus' teaching came from a source outside of himself. He claimed no authority and expertise on his own. And the goal of his teaching was not about seeking his own glory and fame. They found his teaching compelling and satisfying, but it didn't line up with their expectations. They continue to challenge Jesus on the kind of works he does. They accuse him of breaking their cultural code of doing work on the Sabbath. You see, they're referring to a couple chapters earlier in John chapter 5 where Jesus heals an invalid man on the Sabbath. That's the day of rest for the Jews. And they said, well, you're doing work. You're violating our laws. And they question Jesus who is supposedly a teacher of the law, but he seems to be a hypocrite because he, he's breaking the law at his whim. And so Jesus responds to them in verse 23. 
He says, now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so for Jews, boys were always circumcised on the eighth day after birth. And if that happened to coincide with Sabbath, they were permitted to do that according to their tradition. So he's saying to them, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a whole man's body on the Sabbath? Might drop. <laughs> Reality turned against their expectations. Their last challenge they throw before him are questions about his provenance. In verse 27, they say, we know where this man's from, but we're told when the Messiah comes, we will, uh, no one will know where he's from. And Jesus responds, agreeing that they know where he is from geographically. They know this hometown, but he reminds them that they don't know where he is from theographically. Yes, you know me, he says in verse 28 and 29, and you know where I am from. I'm not from here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. He is sent from the Heavenly Father, the living God, who was even more important than the town that Jesus came from. The life that they were longing for is actually found in the God who created them and set all things right. The reality of Jesus confronted their expectations. He didn't have Ivy League credentials or internship with the most powerful people in town or didn't come from elite circles, but he exemplified a life that crowds longed for. And these qualities that were attractive in Jesus' life and ministry were because of the character and life of God at work in him. Because he is God in the flesh. The spirit of the living God was fully in him. What he said and what he did and where he came from all intrigued the people as it confronted their expectations of what a Messiah would look like. The reality that they thirsted for in life was found in the living God. And this was the reality that Jesus came to introduce, a future life that they could never have imagined because their expectations were misplaced. Sometimes reality confronts our expectations in a way, in a way that we would never expect because our framework for understanding our lives and the world we live in is incomplete. Buried amidst all these series of conversations is a profound truth that Jesus says in verse 24. He says, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Judge correctly. Whatever reality that you encounter, if you have certain expectations, consider if your expectations were grounded in the correct assumptions of reality. And if something doesn't line up with your expectations, then perhaps our expectations were incomplete in the first place. And that's what Jesus is doing here with his people. A few years ago, my sister, who is a physical therapist, sent me a link by email for a running and injury prevention study. Now, I wasn't running at the time, and I actually still don't run. I don't like running. But the study offered some swag. It was a GPS watch and to, to get a gait analysis done with all this gear, with a, you know, some guy with all these fancy letters behind his name, and you do a VO2 max test to see how much oxygen your body could process. And you, what was the commitment? 12 weeks of regimented training 
in preparation for the first half marathon that I've ever participated in. So every morning I'd have to wake up and measure my heart rate and then get on the scale and weigh myself and then follow this running plan. I just was in it. My expectation was just get some free stuff and if I can run, great. But as I began to run and train, I noticed that there was improvements and I completed my first half marathon and I realized I had this new freedom. Running did actually have some benefits and I could see myself enjoying parts of it and beginning to find satisfaction in it. So much so that I end up talking to people and telling them, oh, you should try this program. Not only do you get free stuff, if it ever comes around, but the program itself is good because you get healthier and you get faster and you feel better about yourself. There's satisfaction in growing in this skill. The Apostle John continues the story. On the last day of the week-long feast, Jesus stands up to proclaim an invitation. He says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow from within them. The Feast of Tabernacles took place in the fall when Jews would pilgrimage to Jerusalem to find priests pouring water around the altar in thanksgiving for God's blessing in the past, but also anticipating as they're pouring all this water for a future where God's blessing would flow in abundance through the land. And at this feast, faithful Jews could not help but recall the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 47 when, he, when there's a vision of a mighty river flowing from the temple of the Jewish worship and out to the whole world and everything is flourishing in, in abundance. So it's in this setting that Jesus stands up on the very last day to proclaim this new reality, except the abundance and flourishing and satisfied life wasn't going to be according to their expectations. He came as a leader to teach and to heal and restore, as we saw happening, unfolding in the Gospel of John. But he came to restore and heal and bring new life, not just to land and to the temple of Israel, but to the hearts and lives of his people. New life and restoration wasn't merely coming to society and government and politics, but to the hearts and minds of God's people. Rather than the living water of life flowing out of the temple, the living water was going to flow out of the hearts of his people. Recall a couple of weeks ago, if you were here with us, when Jim Martin shared on John chapter 4, and if you'd like to listen, just hop on to wcf.church.org slash sermons, you can catch up on that. He spoke on John chapter 4, where Jesus promises the Samaritan woman the same rivers of living water and how her life was changed. In this dialogue, she expected a temple and a mountain on their land, and she was trying to talk to Jesus about whether it's on this mountain or on that mountain. But instead of a physical location of a temple and the land that she expected, Jesus suggests this promise of new life and living water will be fulfilled in the lives of individual human beings. We saw in the Samaritan woman a picture of the satisfied life that Jesus promises. In meeting Jesus, she finds dignity, and forgiveness and acknowledgement after a lifetime of vulnerability and shame. She goes away from this encounter with Jesus to find uh, full of joy and faith. So much so that she goes back to her hometown and she leaves behind her water jars. She's, she's so filled with joy and satisfaction, she runs off and tells all of her friends of this person that she had met. 
I think that sounds like a pretty satisfied life. How do we experience this life of satisfaction promised by Jesus? Jesus says, whoever thirsts and whoever believes in me, whoever thirsts and whoever believes in me, that's all it takes is to acknowledge your thirst. And that thirst is not just for things or for stuff or for status. That thirst is a thirst for the living God. And we experience it when we put our trust. Literally in the Greek, when it says, whoever believes in me, says, the person trusting me. An active, continuous tense. That whoever continues to trust in me experiences this overflowing, satisfying life. It's the same verb used for belief in salvation, for salvation, belief for eternal life, belief for rebirth, belief for the filling of the Spirit, which Jesus promises here. They didn't get to experience the fullness of the Spirit back then, but we do, since Jesus went to the cross. You know, those who recognize their thirst and come to trust in Jesus find themselves filled with a quality of life that is unexpected, but good. Deep within our human psyche and our soul is a thirst for the very presence of the living God. And the promise of the Spirit is the quenching of this eternal thirst for completion and intimacy that only our Creator can satisfy. In fact, it goes beyond satisfaction of our own thirst. As we recognize our thirst and come before Jesus, the Spirit of the living God fills us and we find ourselves overflowing with this life of God. And here's the thing. For those who recognize their thirst and come to Jesus, those who trust God both get and give this overflow. Those who trust in God both get and give this overflowing life. I'd like to close with this reading from C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, from the Chronicle of Narnia series. Jill is a 10-year-old girl who finds her life tremendously difficult. And as she enters Narnia, her thirst and search for water lead her to meet someone. It goes like this. The birds had ceased singing, and there was perfect silence except for one small persistent sound, which seemed to come from a good distance away. She listened carefully and felt almost sure it was the sound of running water. Jill got up and looked around her very carefully. There was no sign of the lion, but there were so many trees that it might be easily quite close without her seeing it. But her thirst was very bad now, and she plucked up her courage to go and look for that running water. The wood was so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment, and sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade and saw the stream bright as glass, running across the turf a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward to drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned to stone with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. 
If you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you're thirsty, come and drink. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger. A sort of heavy golden voice. Are you thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Do you eat girls? she asked fearfully. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill. Coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. The lion said, There is no other stream. There is no other stream but the living God. And we are thirsting and thirsting and we're wandering through life, searching for that satisfaction in him. And Jesus says, Whoever thirsts, come and believe. Will you do that today? Whatever you're thirsting for, whatever expectations you have placed for Jesus, will you lay them down before him and find a new reality of life, fulfillment, and overflowing? Let's pray. Jesus, we come with our expectations. Some of them are misplaced. Some of them are true. As we come to you, thank you that you have already come to us. And you've been beckoning us by your Spirit. Will you give us the courage to trust you and be surprised by the way you satisfy our longings beyond our expectations? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Are you thirsty? During this time of confession, I want to invite us to